Hi, welcome to Knowledge Shots, a podcast brought to you by SupremeMinds.ai, a place where you can learn from and network with the top 1% experts from the global tech ecosystem. Today, we are in conversation with Samir, who is a network effects advisor and investor at breadcrumb.vc. In this podcast, we'll talk about how to think about building network products from day one, distinction between marketplaces, platforms and networks, and how best to monetize network products. Um, write a few essays, diving a bit deeper into what network effects actually work, how they work, how does defensibility and scalability actually work. And because I saw everything that was out there, while it was good, it was very high level. Uh, and so I, I thought I'd write a couple of essays, I ended up writing 25 essays over the course of a year. And then I launched uh, a course about network effects based on so all the material I collected, which turned out to be a considerable amount. And in addition to uh, those two things, I also do some consulting on network effects and I'm part of something called the Atomico Angel Program. So there's a, a series A firm here in Europe called Atomico that runs this angel program. The way it works is they pick 10, 15 people from Europe and give them some capital to go invest in whatever they want at the pre-season seed stage for, for a startup headquartered in Europe. And so my thesis was pretty clear. I'd only invest in startups with very strong, the potential for very, very strong network effects. So that's the, right now, that's one other thing that I'm focused on. I'm focused on investing, consulting, and uh, running a course, and they're all completely focused on network effects. So the nitty gritty of what network effects are, how they affect defensibility, scalability, liquidity, which is kind of how do you have enough users to make your network useful. Um, how they affect monetization, how they affect kind of, you know, what metrics you need to measure, what negative network effects are. Basically, all facets of network effect wrapped into a, a course that goes on for about three weeks. Uh, there's two sessions a week, each is about two and a half hours, and I alternate between theory and an actual live exercise. I'll give you uh, guys three or four examples, and you, the, the group can apply the frameworks that, um, that I covered in the previous session, and kind of comes back to the group, and okay, this is what we think it actually is. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a good mix of kind of theory and, and practically applying the, the concepts that you that you learn. And so it's basically focused on three kinds of people. One is your early stage founder, uh, with a startup with network effects, obviously pretty useful to you. Second is if you work in a larger company with network effects, but if you're a product or a GTM role, uh, then a lot of these concepts can be applied there as well. And third is if obviously if you're an investor uh, and you invest in network, network effect business. In general, anyone who invests in consumer tech is obviously in the obvious answer, but also B2B marketplaces, B2B SaaS networks are also sort of in that uh, same position. Cool. Uh, getting to know more about network effects and then um, the concepts, right? So so we, we'll keep it very basic to begin with because um, a lot of us might not be aware of a lot of topics which we've like um, written essays about you deep dived into. So uh, start with the fundamentals. So basically what is network effects for all of us? A very simple definition that can get complex very quickly as you start applying DOTA. So the definition is when the addition of a user increases the value of the product for all users. If that happens, you have a network effect. If it doesn't happen, you don't have a network effect. And it's surprising how often even really, really smart people in Silicon Valley can choose. Um, what is your take on, let's say, a company which or startup or just a product in the early stages to know that they are, let's say, iterating in the right way? You can recognize network effects even before a product is built. So in the sense that you can say, if this works, it has network effects. The question basically is, one, are users interact, are meant to be interacting with each other on the product? Users of the network. If you're doing that, then the more users there are, theoretically speaking, the value of the product goes up. So that has the basis for network effects. Now, if that assumption is true, 
And only that assumption is true. You follow a really specific approach when you're, when you're building. And this is probably one area where most of the folks who have written on the topic are actually pretty accurate about it. NFX calls this the white hot center. Uh, Andrew Chen calls this the atomic network. They're all the same thing, which yeah. is basically initially when you're, when you're growing this product, you need to find a small initial base of users you can get interacting with each other on a regular repeatable basis. Now, whether that's 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, it doesn't really matter. What matters more is if they're doing it, one, if you're a marketplace, do you have strong liquidity? Meaning relative to the number of people you have, transactions are actually happening on the network. You don't have the issue of people showing up and then leaving. Mm -hmm. And so you, you need to see those transactions flowing. Second, if you're not a transactional marketplace, what you need to see is high retention. So okay. let's say you have a network with 15, 20 people. Do they keep coming back? If you don't have, if people visit you one time and then go away, they're churning, they're churning out, you haven't really built a stable minimum viable network. So getting that initial minimum viable network is really important, which means the people you need to attract initially are just as important, if not more important than the product you're building. Because they are part of the product. Okay, okay. Who does this solve the biggest, most painful problem for today in the current iteration of variant of the product? Focus on those users. If you can get them interacting with each other, at a reasonably high retention, then you've got something uh, that's a start. Okay, so if I had to put in, let's say, uh, explain it with an example, uh, probably like like a Slack in the in, in its early days, in a, a small Slack group where people are active. Let's say there are three of them or four of them, but are using it on a daily basis uh, to exchange X number of messages. Would be something that has that small atomic network, right? And then yeah, you yeah. look at similar such atomic networks and probably um, then start to scale with similar networks, right? And that will lead I mean, to- Albert, this is where sort of Andrew Chen's book gets a little lost. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that within, the way Slack works is within organizations or within communities, right? So yeah. what, where he's right is that you need three or four people who use it very frequently as opposed to 300 people who don't use it frequently at all. Sign up don't matter that. You need to, uh, the three or four people who are going to be using it. Once you have those three or four people within an organization, let's say that's the marketing team, right? Who does the marketing team collaborate with? Probably the sales team or the product team. Okay. Gradually it's going to hit these cross-functional workers. The cross-functional workers, when they talk about it internally, it's going to make sense for the product team and the, and the sales team to come on as well. So gradually that's how it spreads within a, uh, within a company. But given that Slack is local, at least originally, was localized to a company, yeah. Uh, you basically would have to create this again in a different company, in a different company, in a different company. That's not how every single network works. Yeah. Uh, Snapchat didn't work that way. Uh, you might have some natural adoption in different pockets. Okay. Gradually speaking, Snapchat had the capability of spreading from kind of one campus across a whole city, across a whole state, across a whole country. Because the nature of that form of communication isn't really restricted by geography. Or restricted by a boundary of, of an organization. Airbnb as well. Kind of once you have initial pockets of engagement, it's pretty easy to leverage hosts on one side to attract guests from multiple locations, or guests in on one side to attract hosts from multiple locations. So okay. it's it depends on the kind of network you have. So that you need to take a pretty deep look at what your network actually is, what the nature of the interactions is. Are they cross-border? Are they local? Okay. Are, is each user unique? Is each user commoditized? So that a lot of those facets are actually going to it. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Makes sense. So before we even like start looking at examples, I want to like go again back to the fundamentals, right? Um, so how do you look at differentiating between platforms versus networks versus marketplaces, right? So I use the term 
network as a catch-all term to define any product with network effects. So a network is anything with network effects, whether that's iOS or Airbnb or Yelp. Anything with network effects, can that, that product can be defined as a network. Now, within that, you've got four basic uh, types of network effects. You have a data network, which is basically products with data network effects, what I call an interaction network, which is you're connecting users to enable them to exchange information and interact directly. So that could include a social network or Facebook, Snapchat. It could include a publishing network like Medium. It could include a SaaS product like Carta or Asana or Slack. There's lots of different types of interactions you can have in there. Yep. A marketplace is when you're connecting buyers and sellers to allow them to actually buy, transact between each other. So it's very, very, a very, very transaction interaction. So Airbnb, Uber, Amazon, all those would come into marketplace. Platform is a term that's heavily abused but if you look at the actual uh, meaning of the term platform, it's when a company has a product and they allow developers to create applications on top of the product or integrate, integrate applications with the product that the product users can then use. That's a platform. So iOS is a platform, Shopify is a platform, Salesforce is a platform, there's loads of different types, but developers building stuff for integrating their stuff for users is the critical part. Cool, cool. That sums it up. So, um, so let's think from a early stage um, startup point of view, right? Like, so when someone's building a product early on, right? How should they think about network effects from day one? And let's say, if take an example, like if you are starting a consumer product, um, how do you think about uh, building network effects from the very first get go, right? Um, uh, how would you think about the the easy answer to that is to start small. Right? It's it's always Unlike a, you building a headspace where you kind of build something, you you get a lot of this content and try to go as big as possible, get as much revenue as possible, that's not how networks work. Uh, it's important to start small with a healthy network. And a healthy network is one where you either have good liquidity or has strong retention, right? Where people are getting what they want out of it. It is a lot better to have 50 people getting a lot of value out of the network than 5,000 people who don't. Uh, because if you have 5,000 users and you know, you, your retention is 10% effectively, you really just have 50 users. Okay. Uh, and all, it, all it's telling me is that you haven't really figured out who your minimum viable network actually is. So okay. getting to that minimum viable network is the most important uh, step and area. Literally nothing else matters. Your growth traction doesn't matter. Your revenue doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. Okay. And it's interesting because you you might have that small atomic network, which is self-sustainable, but as you scale, you start to see that you don't have the same retention uh, matrix. So it, is that something yeah. common? Because this atomic network can actually be because of negative network effects can lose value, right? Like I can have 50 users who are like pretty happy interacting with each other. The moment I have hundred others, there's a lot of dilution in, in the way they interact. No. That, that can there's a lot to unpack. I mean, the first thing to unpack is actually a lot of founders don't actually know what retention, retention means. So a lot of people assume retention is you have a user who's signed up and opened the product and if he comes back and opens the product again, that's retention. That's really not retention. Retention is two. You can break that into two things. One is conversion to core action, which is you signed up a user. Mm -hmm. That user is actually doing the one thing that makes the product more valuable for others. You know, Facebook is posting something. LinkedIn, it could be adding a connection. That core action is really what's important because that's what creates network, not just the presence of you. The second component of that is retention to core action. Once they've done that, do they come back and do it again? So once you scale from 50 to 5,000, either of those could break. One is 
your attention to core actions will break meaning people do that and they stop they're not no longer doing it afterwards which means that as you've expanded from this core minimum viable network to others you've gone after the wrong users mm-hmm. the second is the conversion to core action which is people are signing up but they're actually not doing the core action if that's the case your problem is probably even more fundamental in the sense that your messaging that was appealing to this initial network or maybe you know you got that initial network through your uh, through your own network like personal connection yeah. but actually when you went out with your messaging that messaging is attracting the wrong kind of users mm-hmm. or the messaging is incorrect it's not explaining what the what the value proposition is now if the second is a lot easier to fix you can fix messaging very very easily yeah uh, fixing poor retention to core action is much harder because either a the the product itself is not capable of going beyond that 50 uh, 50 user that initial 50 users yeah. which case you got a really serious problem uh, the second is you've not really thought of this interaction in the right sense which is kind of a variation of that first one so that's a more fundamental issue okay uh, the conversion to core action is something that can be fixed pretty easily okay cool so to sum it up each startup should have a core action which they track on a daily basis or whatever daily weekly or whatever however whatever frequency that is yeah and that is the key indicator saying that if that is repeatable and it's increasing it's a good indication that people are finding the yeah. use case relevant a really a really simple hack is to just take a look at the actual engagement how many times has the number of acts that action been performed as your network has grown mm-hmm. if it's healthy uh the rate of engagement with that core action over time should be increasing per user so you know from five posts uh, a week to 20 posts a week as your user base has gone from 50 to 200 if that's flatter coming down at that early stage is the problem it's not like that going to go up forever yeah early on when you have a really small base of users you do need to see that grow all right a, a very very large user base right and let's let's see like what's there to learn from them so uh, what are some ways startups can gather momentum early in their journey right like if you look at uber facebook uh, even tinder or reddit right um, some of them started with a tool and then slowly graduated into the network saying that hey you come for the tool and then you stay for the network um some use invite only tactics some use flintstoning where they would create uh, using a bot uh post so so what are the what are these some of these tactics which early stage startups can use um and is there a framework around it or is it more like uh experiment uh, to see what's working for you and then stick to that uh um, it's, it's a complex question because of a couple of things one is that all of those are on, on tactics like invite only is a tactic right so yeah. what you're trying to do is build hype build hype yeah uh comes to the tools stay for the network is not a tactic but it's a fundamental component of the way you structure the network the whole idea of come for the tool stay for the network is you're building a piece of software you sell it or give it away to some people once you have enough of them you can attract more people because they're doing stuff on it the best example that i like not instagram it's open table uh because they sold restaurant reservation software to restaurants so once they had enough of those uh they could allow consumers to book reservations with those restaurants so on day one they wouldn't have enough restaurants to be able to get get to consumers um there's another one that i call side switching which is So it's specific for marketplaces where buyers and sellers are really the same. So if you look at a C2C marketplace like Spark or Gumtree, buyers, especially early on, if you try and attract people who are likely to sell stuff to start with, they'll also stick around and buy stuff. So the same user plays both sides. You need fewer of them to, uh, to get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. But the sad truth is uh, listing all of these is not going to help your startup because uh, you're not going to be able to cycle through them to see which one works for you. 
Yeah. So they're all very, very specific to your product. Like Facebook wouldn't be able to use the couple of tools they have in a Google search. Instagram actually did use come for the tools for the network, but it was the what actually worked for them was product morality more than come for the tools for the network. That's okay. actually a bad example for that because it's not just that people were using filters on their images. It was that people were sharing those images on Facebook. That's what got them their users. Mm-hmm. Whereas an open, open table had come for the tools for the network, but it didn't have any virality. They actually had to kind of, once they had this, they had to actually do paid marketing and stuff to get users, uh, users on. So clearly what you got to figure out is what does your product actually need? Day one. Do you need more content irrespective of who it's from? Mm-hmm. If it is, great. Uh, the founders better get busy creating content for the product. If you're, uh, if you're medium, if you're trip advisor, if you're ready, that's what you really need. But uh, if you're Instagram, for example, if you were creating all the content for your product, people would come in and see one account posting all these pictures they would leave. Yeah. So you need lots of people doing that. So you need something else. So what, in that case, that was product virality. Uh, if you were Tinder, you just needed an awful lot of people uh, on the product at the same time who wanted to deal each other. This is a pretty good example from the cold start problem. They basically yeah. ran singles parties and everyone who came in needed to have the app. And so when you left the party and you wanted to kind of match with someone who was at that party, you would open up the app. That's a good hack for Tinder. Definitely wouldn't work for LinkedIn. Yeah. So it's very, very specific to, to your product. And so it's kind of hard to say these are the tactics you should be thinking of. There's, there's really no hard and fast tool there. The broad thing you can be thinking of is comfortable stay for the network product morality, making your own, uh, making your own content, running events. Uh, invite only is not really, I wouldn't call it a standalone tactic. Yeah. It is sort of complementary to something else. You're building hype, but building hype for what? Yeah. So if I think about um in the early days when they said that it's going to be, let's say, a 0% um, investment platform, um, people started registering for the invite list. And by the time they launched, they already had like a million, close to a million folks, if I'm not wrong. But the reason the reason for that was because they couldn't handle the server load. It wasn't, yeah. I mean, uh, dominant network, right? So even if they, even if five users joined uh, the app or one user joined the app, as long as the app worked and they had coverage if their infrastructure was set up you could buy your stock on it and you could hold a stock and you could trade a stock that's not the case for an instagram or a linkedin you need other people because that's what you're there for that's the idea of an network effect right so robin hood is a simple standalone what i call a traditional business model okay but so how the invite only bit so it, it, the idea for invite only is if you want to create fomo the the way you would do that is you have high profile influencers offer certain sites that fit your network in the product first, which means you go out and get them before you do the invite only bit. Then you have some activity in the product. Yeah. Then you make it invite only because now there's a reason for people to sign up for the invite. Correct. So in case where my interaction has to happen with a lot of other people, it makes sense to get those many people using invite only at first and then open the network to everyone rather than keep it open and then look pe- let people come in and see hey there's no activity and then just fall off right that's yeah. that's going to be a typical cold start problem right there yeah and again as long as it works for you so invite only wouldn't work for um lots of different types of products like invite only reddit is probably the worst idea imaginable <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about especially monetizing uh network products because we understand like it's easier to monetize tools um something which a, a single unit which works for everyone and you can just go out and sell it um saying that hey this solves 
this problem and then why don't you pay x amount for it how do you think about looking at network products and monetization there right a lot of uh, platforms like discord uh, actually gained a lot of users before they even start looking at monetization so is it is it something which uh, these platforms do um, on purpose or the network is absolutely of no use to people if you start monetizing them very early Uh, again, comes back to type of network it is. The, the reason it's easy to monetize a, a standalone business is, you know, you made a thing, you're selling the thing, people give you money for the thing. It's not complicated. The problem with a network is you're not making money from a thing. You've connected people to each other, yeah. created a relationship, and now you're monetizing the relationship. So if you want to do that, it depends on the kind of relationship it is. Uh, if it's a marketplace, kind of, you know, how what's the power disparity between both sides? Mm-hmm. How difficult and how difficult is it for them to complete the transaction? Depending on that, there's a bunch of different monetization models. And in some cases, just a straight commission. Sometimes you have to charge uh, a subscription for one side. Right? There's marketplaces that don't don't charge a commission at all. It's a subscription for one side, free for one side. Uh, if you're a an interaction network, it depends on are your interactions one to one, like on WhatsApp. In case best of luck with advertising, that's not not gonna happen. And mm-hmm. one to many, like Facebook or Instagram. In that case, advertising is more viable. uh how dense is the network now paypal pretty sparse now you're interacting with one or two other people really uh something like facebook snapchat linkedin significantly denser network yeah depending on those factors you want to have multiple uh options in play in general really six monetization models that any network can use at best mm-hmm. and the choice of that depending depends on the kind of relationship so for a data network the relationship dynamics are slightly different for platforms are even more uh constricted so it will always come back to if you implement this monetization model is it going to negatively affect the relationships you're creating on on the network which is why facebook could never charge you as a user to sign mm-hmm. because then fewer people would sign up and then you wouldn't be able to add the people you want to sign that's a negative impact on the relationship okay okay so would this be true for a platform like um um or discord today or even slack for that matter like how do how do they think about uh monetization uh, when it comes to yeah chat so both of them Both of them use well. At least Slack uses something that I call a premium network tier. So basically, what you're doing is giving away a free, limited network. So it gives you a certain amount of allows allows you to have a certain amount of interaction. But if you want to have a lot more interactions, add the entire company. You know, you're losing. You're going to lose all your archive messages because there's going to be so many messages flying around. In which case, you need to upgrade to the enhanced network for the density to actually be viable. Uh, in Discord's case, it's what I call term call a complementary product. I mean, that's what they're doing for Nitro, right? Mm-hmm. Called, um, it's called. I think that's what they they call it. Which is basically, here's a thing you can buy that you can use with this existing network. It's okay. not really related to the interactions on the network itself, but it might enhance the value you get from it. Okay. So the advantage with complementary products is you don't it doesn't depend on the nature of the interactions you can use. It, it depends on kind of how creative you are to come up with it. Pretty much any in-app virtual good for a network, uh, even kind of the uh, Roblox on Roblox, for example. Would all count as what I would call complementary products. It's pretty easy to use. You see a lot more social networks trying to use them right now. Yubo, uh, Discord, uh, Roblox, which is more for gaming and social. Okay. So, what, how do you think about defensibility with these products? Let's say even if we talk about Slack, um, a small group which itself creates an atomic uh, network can be replicated in let's say another messenger or any other app, right? Ten uh, folks. uh sign new exchange daily notes or or daily uh calendars and stuff like that so 
how do you basically think of defensibility in such products which which can actually ha- start off the ground with a very small group of people i i think it doesn't actually depend on whether it's starting with a small group of people within a company or not mm-hmm. it depends for an interaction network like slack it depends on user identity user identity is really important which means you need not just 10 people you need those 10 people and if those 10 people are on slack everything important is going to happen on slack if three of them decide they want to do everything on whatsapp and the other seven go no that's all it's not going to happen so it needs a product where all 10 need to move there so usually when it's three people defensibility is not exceptionally strong when yeah. three people becomes 10 20 30 50 it becomes stronger and stronger makes sense cool so um, let's let's look at crowded networks right let's look at areas where there's a lot of competition and then uh, there's something you and i were discussing uh, also um, on one hand uh zoom is considered in itself as a network product where just two people can start up the network right um and uh it it started where there was already skype they were like webex um and the market was really crowded uh for a lot of investors it was uh, uh sort of say an area where the problem has already been solved uh but you still had a product which is like a breakout product and then grew leaps and bounds uh most people and like even we are today using zoom right for our interaction so how do you think about such areas is it like in hindsight you can say that okay this product did this thing right um uh, how do you think about it in areas where, which have not been disrupted so far is is there uh, one single rule of thumb which you can use to identify if that's going to break the market change the market or change things for the right uh, how do you think about it so there's two things to unpack here one is zoom second is kind of entering crowd model so first thing is that zoom doesn't actually have network effect i know andrew chen talks about this in his in his book and it is something i've written about quite a while and i, I can't believe people still assume that zoom does have network effect i'll start with skype so let's say you were using skype i don't know all you guys have used skype it's not necessarily the uh, <laughs> the coolest product these days uh, or or these years uh, so the idea was in skype the atomic network the minimum viable network is two people i needed to have a skype account the person i wanted to talk to needed to have a skype account and i needed to add him as a friend or to my network or whatever if both of us were on skype you added then i got called uh and the skype built up this network of people who could call each other because they all had each other's skype ids yes the zoom doesn't have that the atomic network is not two they don't have an atomic network that you need one person to use zoom which is the person who wants to make a call and the other person you know receives the link and clicks on the link he doesn't need to have a zoom account he doesn't need to have ever heard of zoom uh he doesn't need to do anything after the call he could jump on the google meet after that call and make no difference to him the call already happened okay so zoom does have product variety which means that if you create a uh, create an invite you send me a zoom link all of a sudden they go ha huh, what zoom i think i do like oh this is zoom hmm, looks quite nice but it affect my the value i'm getting from the, from the product no it might affect it might affect my awareness and i go this is a, a decent product maybe i'll use it for my next call Mm-hmm. and then i do that and that process continues and so everyone gets to know of zoom that's what grew grew so rapidly which is which is product variety but they don't actually have a network effect the number of people who have zoom account does not in any way affect your experience with zoom mm-hmm. and so they don't have any defensibility associated with network network effect either. but the question about the crowded market is useful because in general i'll frame crowded market as a market where incumbents already have strong network effect when skype was one of those mm-hmm. uh and if you want to break into markets like those basically there's two approaches if there's a big company with strong network effect the first approach is what zoom is which is to actually sacrifice network effect completely 
Mm-hmm. So design your product in such a way that network effects are completely dead in a way that it actually improves the experience for everyone. So for example, if you were a salesperson and you were trying to make a sale, every time you want to talk to someone, uh, when you're trying to make a sale, you basically have to email them, ask them if they have Skype, get their Skype ID, add them, then call. Five steps. Okay. If you want to have a call with them on, uh, on Zoom, you send them a Zoom link, done. A lot easier, right? So it's a better experience for everyone. As a as the person who is receiving the sales call, I don't want to have to go back and forth this much just to be able to do a call either. So Zoom is a lot easier. So I'm happy to receive a Zoom link to just click on that. So you've improved the experience by completely removing the network and sacrificing a network effect. Open doors on the same thing. So you don't have to deal with uh, deal with agents and try and figure out kind of when you're uh, when you sell your house to somebody else and then you buy a house from uh, from this. Uh, from this agent and seller who then needs to sell their house. Uh, they need to buy a, buy a different house. Right? The chain is completely removed. Open door, buy the house, sell it to you. There's no defensibility there. Okay. Uh, capital requirement can be a bit higher depending on kind of the model it is. But it's disruptive to the actual network that came before it. Mm-hmm. That's one way. Second way is uh, every network effect is based on the interaction, change the interaction. So when Snapchat came up, uh, Instagram was already live, Facebook was already live, they were sort of mainstream social network. The idea of Snapchat was uh, disappearing pictures. It was completely anti- antithetical to Facebook and Instagram because there you posted images to create this kind of vast, vast profile mm-hmm. and people came to your profile to see the pictures you'd upload and people go onto the feed to scroll all the pictures that have been uploaded over the course of the last day, week, whatever. Snapchat had disappearing pictures. It was antithetical to that. So all of a sudden they were able to create a network effect around that interaction. So if you create a new interaction, even within the same broad market, you can disrupt the incumbents. If you sacrifice network effect and make a better customer experience, you can make inroads when those products are easier. Okay, so I'm going to push that idea a little further. So let's say within India, if GeoMeet uh, probably has the same product, you can just use that link to send it to someone else. Does that have, have a chance to actually disrupt Zoom or beyond a point, you would still agree that there is good amount of network effects within with Zoom, uh, so to say, uh, with, with people say, who are not going to switch to GeoMeet. I say, say both are both assumptions are incorrect in mm-hmm. the sense that Zoom still doesn't have network effects irrespective of how big they are. Again, it comes out, it doesn't matter how many users they have. Mm-hmm. Does Zoom's user base affect your life or affect your experience with the product? If it doesn't, they don't have network effects. The reason people use Zoom is because they're accustomed to the product. Mm-hmm. The reason people might use GeoMeet, maybe they're not accustomed to the product. Does the product feel as good? Does actual execution, uh, does the video work as well? Does the video uh, not lag at all? Is it as quick to create uh, an event on, on Zoom as it is on GeoMeet? So in all respects, they're basically on this, it's a level safe playing field in terms of the actual product. None of the product has a fundamental structural advantage. Whether it's Microsoft Teams or Zoom or GeoMeet or Google Meet, they're all simply trying to compete based on execution, right? Mm-hmm. Execution, okay. branding, more traditional ways to uh, to compete. They're not they're, they're not competing based on network. None of them has an unfair advantage. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So um, let's let's talk about negative network effects. Like this is one thing which I wanted to like spend some time understanding, right? Um, when do you see whether it's Facebook or like their products with with who pretty much have millions and billions of users um, start to have negative network effects. Um, what actually leads to it? And then when do you know that your product is going in that direction where you're starting to see negative network effects? Obviously this, let's say for early stage startups who are starting to see this happen and they can course correct. Uh, 
mean, there's three broad types of negative network effects. Two of, of them are really relevant for, for software. One of them is only for crypto. So, so that's network congestion. So let's put that aside. Uh, the two types, one is called network pollution. So basically it means usually for social networks or networks where you're kind of broadcasting content from one user to many. It's when you've added, when your network has grown beyond a point where uh, you see a lot of content that's irrelevant to you, might, might be relevant to other people, irrelevant to you. So Facebook, for example, early on, it was all your friends and you were, you saw interesting stuff on there all the time. All of a sudden, your grandma, your granduncle, your uh, your mom's brother, your, your brother's dog, you're all, you're all on Facebook and you see uh, a bunch of stuff on there that you genuinely don't give a rat about. So that's network pollution. Uh, the second type of negative network effect is basically bad actors. People that are trying to, people that have selfish reasons to be on the network and they're creating a bad experience everywhere. Now, what that is can depend on the network. You know, you're going to see spam on LinkedIn, on Twitter, especially on LinkedIn, that happens a lot. Uh, you're going to see uh, trolls on a lot of social networking sites. You're going to see scammers on market places like Airbnb. You're going to see uh, malware applications on, on Windows and Android and iOS. So all of those are, are bad actors. Now, in terms of, you can't really avoid them. They're going to happen. If your network is meet a need for someone, and that means there's an attractive market for other people as well, people you might not necessarily want to Now, when you're very early stage startup, there's really just one way to man to kind of manage it, which is find these people and ban them. Uh, that is what I call manual curation. There's like five different curation approaches. I won't get into them because they get into the nitty-gritty quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But basically your way, your approach to manage curation is going to change as you grow. There's certain types of curation that are better against bad actors, there's some certain that are better against network pollution. But this is one of those things that you can't beat. You have to manage. Like even today, Twitter and Facebook deal with a ton of disinformation. It's a hard problem to solve. You can't fix it. YouTube can't fix it. You can just manage it to some degree. Okay, cool. And um, if if I had to think about from a point of defensibility, right? Like um, we we'll talk about a recent example of Clubhouse versus Twitter Spaces, right? Um, what do you think? is the current way of, especially in consumer, right? Where uh, something which works can easily be replicated in products which already have good amount of network effects, whether it's LinkedIn or whether it's Twitter. Um, how do you think like, apart from capital, um, these startups who are innovating in terms of, uh, let's say um, um, user interaction, which is actually leading to a good outcome. How do they basically compete with the, the current existing big networks who can basically build pretty much the same features and then go live with them. I mean, it always comes down to the same thing, right? It's not about the, the features, it's about the network. And the clubhouse versus Twitter spaces thing, I wouldn't call it as much about defensibility, plain and simple execution thing. I'm going to partly relate to that to the, the people who are sitting on their board mm -hmm. uh, because it is a Blindingly obvious execution failure. Think about the reason why Clubhouse became okay. You guys have used Clubhouse. Like, why did you? When did you first hear of Clubhouse? Why did you sign up? Yeah, so what, what I, I remember using Clubhouse because, like, I, I was just curious to see what, how the product works. Um, and it was first, obviously, it was launched on iPhone, and then uh, the the startup community was quite active there. Um, and okay. idea was to be like be participated there and then know what's okay. So what, you okay. hit on something important. Like you said startup community. Now, yeah. was, was it early stage founders who you never heard of or were there some high profile people in there holding conversation? 
I, I think it was a mix of both. Um, you had occasional uh, guys who you did not know, but had lots to share, like a lot of knowledge yeah. to share. These are not like guys who like you commonly, yeah. but have actually like built companies, grinded through it. So there's a lot of learning. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that yeah. meant a lot of basically, yeah. So basically, it was the people. It was the people who had interesting things to say, and you were interested in what they had to say. Right. Right. So yeah. it, it's not like. It's not like you, there's a guy in there from Kopal who who kind of explaining why he left, why he worked for Modi or whatever. That's that's not why you were there, right? Exactly. So you were there. You were there to listen to. So originally in Silicon Valley, people were there to listen to Mark Andreessen speak. People were there uh, to listen to Elon Musk speak. People were there to listen to Peter Thiel. All these people, interesting people who who you would normally not get to listen to elsewhere. So it was all built on identity. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, as the startup grew, uh, I mean, there, there were other execution problems there's something called the spontaneous togetherness problem which they managed to solve luckily thankfully before uh, and reason managed to invest in it but they they had this vision that they were going to be a social audio social network in order to be a social network you basically have to let anyone create a room you have to have these free flowing conversations going on through the course of the day and the thing is most people aren't interested and the moment you the moment you open the floodgates what was a network that was built on the identity of unique individuals and their perspectives and kind of conversation between them and you know occasional normal people chiming in just yeah. became this complete free for all of uh, people talking about things that you generally don't care about okay and the moment that happened it's a lot easier for something like this to happen on a twitter interest graph where you're already following people you're interested in yeah and they're having conversations it's a lot easier to filter for the conversations on twitter where you already are you're already spending time Then yeah. coming back to digging through Clubhouse to figure out what might work. Okay. So the the, the, the original model was somewhat defensible. It was no. just very very poor execution. So it, that's a classic case of negative ne- network effects, right? Like where because there are so many other people who are diluting the network, I tend to like lose interest and then just go out. Yeah. Like, network pollution. Yeah. Network pollution. Exact exact uh, example there. Right. I think we like running out of time. I just have like last question specifically with Web three, right? Uh, so with respect to network effects, and there's a huge discussion going on between the Web two entrepreneurs versus the Web three uh, guys, um, like which is better, which is more decentralized, and uh, <laughs> if decentralization is actually true or just like uh, used frivolously, and then like what what is your take on that? Uh, how should someone who's building a company uh today should think about web3 or web2 right like it should be purely uh it's let's say a problem being addressed through product or it should be the hype which is like driving all the use cases with web3 web3 reminds me of the internet in the mid to late 90s in the sense of lots of interesting technology people were thought this is going to be future but if you ask them how they would throw lots of jargon and jargon and word at you uh but they haven't quite worked out how it is fine it's normal at that stage of evolution um i don't know if web3 is going to be the next internet it might it might not what i see today is an awful lot of speculation uh based on in fact if you look at most projects that are built on web3 a lot of them are basically solving issues in a value chain that basically ends with someone speculating on crypto mm-hmm. so yes there's Something. No one speculating on crypto. The value chain doesn't work, uh, which again is not. This is not very different from domain speculation back in the 90s. Right? It, it happens. It needs to happen. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. It needs to happen because money attracts people. Some of those people will stay when the entire thing pops and build something interesting. So it's what interesting thing is that every project has multiple forms of like like they all have three or four different types all combined. Mm-hmm. But at the stage of evolution, they're at each individual network effect is actually the weakest form of network effect. So there's usually where you're putting a lot of nodes together, which node it is doesn't actually matter. The identity, the identity of individual users doesn't actually matter. Uh, and so the most, the strongest network effects are always ones that are actually centralized. They're not decentralized in any way. So open fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're selling, buying and selling NFTs, but the marketplace is basically a web two marketplace. Mm-hmm. The buyers want to the sellers want to they're transacting with each other. Uh, so uh, Axie Infinity. The Axie marketplace is a big component of their of their success, which again is a centralized marketplace. Mm-hmm. There, all the buyers and sellers congregate there, buy and sell axes from each other. Um, and so the strongest interests I've seen are ones that are centralized there. Maybe um, it probably needs to get solved as an issue in the next uh, you know, five, 10 years. Uh, it's going to start with people actually building real utility of these things that is not linked to speculation. Uh, yeah, and my guess is that it happens once the bubble actually pops because that's usually what happens. Okay, so, so do you think like the, the, the startups which are getting into Web3 now, these are the guys who are going to be like the long-term winners or these are like just the early wave, probably the second wave where people have a lot of information and now they are building on top of that information are going to be the actual winners. So what do you think about that? I mean, historically, if you look at Web1, and Google and Amazon were founded in the late 90s. So is it impossible that some of these companies can emerge as winners? No. Is it likely? No. I think we have, we've already ran out of time, right? Um, I would open it to the rest of the guys. Like if they have any questions, um, Samir would take it. Sure. I've got at least another five minutes. Well, I mean, I think uh, Ankit, you asked all the good questions, to be honest. And you guys are referring to the code start. I have that right there on my sofa and I'm, I'm like trying to go through that like as fast as I can. Uh, the Andrew Chen book, right? So, yeah. yeah. And then I, I guess like I I haven't been introduced to you before, but I mean, you're, you seem to like really know like all the points and, you know, I'm going through like the same experience, but in a completely different like product uh, space. And uh, so, yeah, I think I have to like go through your, your essays. Are, are they there like online or? Yeah, like- uh, they're at breadcrumb.vc. Okay, got it, got it. All right, all right. So, so I'm gonna go through all of those, and then maybe after that, I can reach out to you and you know just do a quick call or something like that if you have time. Sure. Yeah. So Nikhil, uh, uh, Samir runs this cohort, and I think that's gonna start very soon, right? Um, so, uh, we'll basically what we'll do is we'll float a form if you're interested to be part of that cohort. Like, obviously, um, you can then just click on Samir's uh, course there, and then be a part of it. Like, if you're interested in going through the entire uh, course per se. Cool. Um, Sakshi, do you have any question for Samir? All right, full con- conversation. I'm oh, sorry. The question is really pointed, uh, Ankit. So a lot of insights. And like for someone who's not really initiated network effects, I really got a very good overview of uh, you know how things go there. So really, thank you so much for that, Samir. Cool. Lovely. I think we should do it more often if Samir, you, uh, <laughs> the time, we, we should do it more often. I think like there's a lot to unpack. I think we... Uh, still ran above time. I was thinking that we'll be able to finish it early, but uh, that's how things are. Like the, the deeper you go, the longer it takes. So yeah, had an amazing time. Um, I'm sure like um, Samir, if there's 
something which you want to cover in the future we can always like do another one um yeah always connected cool yeah. lovely so uh, without taking any further time like um guys thanks for coming to the session I, i think we'll be having a lot of these such sessions on supreme minds uh, and we do that we'll do that pretty much every week um and if you guys have like any specific interest in in, in a uh, in a little specific area which you want to cover do let me know um and then we'll basically make sure that uh, we can have experts from that area and then um, have a discussion like this